Section three of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book one, chapter three, the electorate. It may be as well to give here some account of the size and importance of King George's continental dominions. It has always been the custom to speak contemptuously of them, as if they gave no addition to the strength of England, but were in every way an encumbrance. Assertions to this effect are constantly made, but it is difficult to find any accurate estimate of the size of the electorate. Neither contemporary nor recent historians furnish facts. There are various points of view from which the comparison can be made. Area, population, army, revenue. With respect to area, it would seem as if King George's continental dominions amounted to between one-fourth and one-fifth of the area of England and Wales. The electorate was smaller than Scotland, much larger than Wales. If we compare it with the United Kingdom, then, as the area of Scotland and Ireland together is about equal to that of England and Wales, we may say that it was one-ninth, in itself no despicable territorial addition. It is always difficult to discover the population of a country in the days before it was usual to take a census. The population of England at the accession of King George I is variably estimated between five and seven millions. It is still more difficult to guess the population of the electorate. Mr. Consul Kerr took some trouble to obtain information about the chief towns a few years earlier. He gives a number of houses, as they were given to me not only from the surveyors and city carpenters, but from the books of hearth money and books of fair pounding, where such taxes are paid. The capital is not at the head of the list. The three largest towns, as given by Mr. Consul Kerr, are Lunenburg, 3,100 houses, Osnaburg, 2,200 houses, and Hannover, 1,850 houses. Now, Osnaburg was not, strictly speaking, in Hanover at all, as the map will show. It was the capital of the bishopric of Osnaburg, which, by a curious arrangement of the Treaty of Westphalia, was to be governed alternately by a Roman Catholic and a Protestant bishop. In 1688, the year when these facts were collected, a Protestant ruled. Then, from 1692 to 1716, a Catholic, who was succeeded by Augustus, brother of George I, who died in 1728. Nor was it until 1803 that Osnabrück, as it ought to be called, was secularized and embodied in Hanover. We have, therefore, only two towns in the electorate of any considerable size, Next to these are Stade, Verden, Zell, Klausthal, and Gödigen, where at a later date George I founded a famous university. The bishopric of Bremen contained no very large town, for the city of Bremen was an independent free town and did not go with the bishopric. But Stade, from its neighborhood to the mouth of the Elbe, was of considerable importance. Harburg, also near Hamburg, was a center of trade, and there was in the south the very ancient capital of Halmon, but its population was not large. In the mining districts, no doubt, the numbers to the square mile would be large, but elsewhere, with few towns and not many villages, and an agricultural population, it cannot have been great. 
the largest town lunenburg would be a little more than half the size of bristol the estimate hardly rises above guesswork but we may infer that the whole population of the electorate did not exceed half a million less than one-tenth of the population of england and wales less than the population of london which had already began to be disproportionate in its growth the army of the electorate was very large in proportion to the population again we have a statement made by mr consul kerr we find that the houses of wolfenbuttel and lüneburg kept on foot in the years sixteen eighty three through four an army of eighteen thousand foot and nine thousand horse whereof ernest augustus at his own expense entertained ten thousand foot and five thousand horse in his dominions these he considerably augmented afterwards in this respect the electorate comes nearest to the united kingdom the peace footing of the english army after the peace of utrecht was fixed at eight thousand men in great britain and eleven thousand more in the plantations that is colonies and abroad there was still in england a strong dislike of a standing army such was not felt at any rate not expressed on the continent in proportion to the size and importance of states the armies of continental powers have always been much in excess of the english army chiefly for the reason that england's first line of defence is the navy but according to the old proverb money is the sinews of war and we may ask how did the two stand as regards revenue in a speech delivered in the house of lords in january seventeen thirty nine lord chesterfield spoke with bitter irony of england so happily annexed to his majesty's german dominions and made this statement about the national resources the whole revenues of the electorate at the time of his late majesty's accession to the throne of these realms did not amount to more than three hundred thousand pounds a year the annual revenue of england at the same time seventeen fourteen was under five millions a year or two before it had reached the figure of five and three-quarters millions the expenditure on the debt alone took more than half the revenue even then it may be seen england was richer than her neighbours at the union with scotland the share of the latter in the land tax was fixed at one fortieth to sum up therefore the electorate stood to the united kingdom in the following proportions as far as area was concerned about one-ninth in population about one-twelfth in military strength much nearer an equality to the english army on its peace footing and not counting the navy in national revenue about one twentieth the wealth of the two nations may perhaps have borne the same proportion as the revenue england was already rising to prominence as a trading community and london was certainly the chief commercial city of the world no doubt the hanoverians when they saw london first thought what the prussian general blucher is reported to have expressed a century later what plunder it was a wealthy inheritance that george elector of brunswick luneburg was about to take up the union with hanover was always unpopular in england more unpopular even than the first two sovereigns themselves who although not of a character to win their subjects love yet represented a principle 
if you wish the pretender never to be king of england said a witty lord have him made elector of hanover it is quite certain the english people will never take another king from there the belief was general that poor germans had come to plunder the richer english this belief is expressed in the humorous story of the hanoverian court lady whose carriage was mobbed in london putting her head out of the carriage window she said in broken english peace good people have you not come for all of your goods meaning for the good of all of you yes promptly replied one of the mob and for our chattels too the same thought is involved in lord chesterfield's complaint when after estimating the paltry revenue of the electorate he adds and yet soon afterwards the considerable purchases of bremen and verden were made for above five hundred thousand pounds sterling at least a million sterling has been laid out over and above in new acquisitions it may be asked why english ministers acquiesced in these purchases with english money and answer must be made that they looked upon the electorate and the united kingdom as permanently joined so that additions to the one were acquisitions for the whole during our hanoverian period there is a constant complaint that england is steered by a hanoverian rudder just as in william the third's reign the charge was that our rudder was dutch william used england gladly to forward projects dear to his heart but they were projects for the good of europe and not only of holland the policy of the first two georges cannot be described as european there is no doubt that they preferred their continental home to their english kingdom that they always left the latter with pleasure and returned to it with regret and that they favoured hanoverians many englishmen disliked this strongly but felt that it was not an unreasonable price to pay for the exclusion of the stuarts it is however a little curious that relief was not sought in a method suggested by sir robert walpole shortly before his fall one day reports speaker onslow he took me aside and said what will you say speaker if this hand of mine shall bring a message from the king to the house of commons declaring his consent to having any of his family after his own death to be made by act of parliament incapable of inheriting and enjoying the crown and possessing the electoral dominions at the same time my answer was sir it will be as a message from heaven the message however never came exactly a century after the accession of king george i the electorate which with the fall of the holy roman empire in eighteen o six had ceased to be an electorate was at the congress of vienna converted into the kingdom of hanover then for the first time hanover properly only the name of the city though often popularly used for the electorate of brunswick luneburg became the name of the state on the accession of queen victoria in eighteen thirty seven the long-desired separation took place because the salic law prevented the kingdom of hanover passing into female hands the wisdom of walpole's suggestion in the previous century has been shown by the avoidance of the very serious complications that would have arisen in eighteen sixty six if hanover and england had possessed the same ruler in that year hanover took the side of austria against prussia and the latter victorious in the seven weeks war 
absorbed all the powers of north germany that were opposed to her had england then been united with hanover the war would have attained much larger proportions and must have been much more serious the union of germany might have been indefinitely retarded it would be invidious to make comparisons between the culture and civilization of hanover and england but it is pleasant to call to mind the names and careers of their greatest men a story runs that once george i was complimented on having two such possessions as england and his electorate and that he replied that he considered it a far greater honour to have amongst his subjects two such men as sir isaac newton and leibnitz whether this story be true or not certainly of all the subjects in his continental dominions none was so famous as the latter philosopher some little account of whom may be of interest gottfried wilhelm leibnitz was born in sixteen forty six at leipzig where his father was a university professor when he was only six he lost his father inheriting from him a large library of books which he eagerly read as a boy he learnt many things and as a young man studied in turn at three different universities classics philosophy mathematics and law all claimed his attention nor did he even disdain to concern himself with alchemy in childhood a boy prodigy throughout life leibnitz was regarded as a kind of universal genius he wrote on philosophical questions on theological on legal and historical on one occasion george i called him a living dictionary when leibnitz was about thirty he was invited by the duke of brunswick luneburg whose successors afterwards became electors to take up his residence at the court of hanover where he was treated with great kindness and most highly valued especially by the electress sophia the original design was that leibnitz should write the history of the house of brunswick it reads like a satire on german thoroughness to hear that the preparations which leibnitz thought necessary for so important a work carried him back as a preliminary to a study of geology so as to know the state of the world before the creation probably his most famous book is his theodicia a treatise on theology and philosophy written to justify the ways of god to man in his later years leibnitz had an unfortunate controversy with newton each claiming to have first discovered the doctrine of the differential calculus the truth was that both had made the same discovery independently and nearly simultaneously some two years after the succession of king george to the throne leibnitz died he had been suffering badly from the gout and possessing some knowledge of medicine of what subject indeed did he not know something he treated himself with a new remedy and the cure proved fatal to him within the space of an hour End of section three